Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to The Strategic Expanse. I'm your host, Nate, and I'm joined by my co-host, Oliver. Hello, world. On this 34th episode, we're going to discuss the second part of strategic warfare. Welcome to The Strategic Expanse. Welcome to the show, guys. Good to be here. Hello, this is Oliver, checking in. How's everybody? Good, thanks for asking. RVP here. Joshua here, good to be here. All right, everybody has chimed in, so Oliver, why don't you take it away, and we'll all play our roundtable roles as needed. Go. Sounds sounds good. Thanks, Nate. So uh, I got the gang back together. This was the same group uh, that was discussing strategic warfare back in December of last year. And we had great uh, ambitions to continue that discussion. Um, It took a little while to get that together, but the timing was pretty good because um, a few episodes ago or a few weeks ago, the group got together for a four-year roundup um, to talk about their experiences with 4X games and some ways that they uh, everybody wanted to see the genre innovate. That led to kind of a follow-up article recently that we had on Explorminate. Uh, that ended, ended up talking a lot about victory conditions and how that ties into the overall kind of gameplay experience, which incidentally was um, the subject matter for the second half of our strategic warfare podcast that we've been wanting to um, record. So it was very uh, fortuitous coming together of different events. So what we wanted to talk about a little bit today, just to set the context, and then we'll we'll move in and, and should have a nice, lively discussion with everybody, um, is kind of talking about the arc of 4X games, um, or kind of the, how it comes together in an overall gameplay loop, how you go from the early game to the mid game to the late game, um, and really how uh, victory conditions in 4X games create kind of the structures around that guide the kinds of decisions that we make, the challenges that we face, how those victory systems might or might not tie into the narrative of different games. Um, And so that's kind of really the heart of the discussion that we want to get to um, today. And I think, you know, as a big criticism that I think a lot of people can relate to in 4X games is this feeling that the beginning of the game is really interesting. The mid-game, there may be these really tense uh, points of conflict, but suddenly um, when you rise above that conflict, your empire starts to snowball the next thing you know, uh, it's inevitable who's going to win in the game, and so you quit out and start a new game. And that kind of final third of the game just isn't really that interesting. So um, my, my kind of hypothesis is that a lot of this has to do with how victory systems are structured over the course of a 4X game. 
Um, and, and in particular, the sense that you know when you have a typical set of 4x uh, victories like conquest or a technology victory or an economic victory, um, it's very easy for uh, this snowballing situation to occur where kind of the rich get richer and it's inevitable who's going to win. And so what we want to really talk about today is are there ways that we can change that dynamic and start to look at games um, in the past that have maybe done things a little bit differently that we might want to learn from and then kind of look ahead and think about where things are going in the future. So uh, there's really three questions that we'll want to touch on. Uh, one is the idea of how might we improve the status quo for victory. The second is talking about games that maybe just avoid victory conditions entirely and what does that mean. And then thirdly, uh, what are games that start to rethink the whole underlying approach to victory conditions at kind of a fundamental level in 4X games and what are some examples of that. Um, so to kick us off on the first question here, um, we brought the whole uh, the whole group here together. And so what we'd like to do is talk a little bit about uh, those existing uh, typical victory conditions that you see, conquest, technology, cultural, economic victory, and start to see, you know, what are games that um, have maybe kind of improved on those in some way or taken that status quo and done something a little bit interesting with it that makes it more of a satisfying experience. And so one of the first things is um, that has come up in the past is this idea of just maybe we should just make the end happen sooner, you know, cut that last third or that last quarter of the game off. And uh, Nate, I know you have a couple things that you want to jump in with on that topic. Indeed. So I have two examples. Um, Galsif 2 being one. Now, this mechanic might also exist in Galsif. I'm pretty sure it exists in Galsif 3, but I personally have not played enough of it in the past year and a half, two years to confirm it. So I will just speak about Galsif 2, where I have hundreds upon hundreds of hours played. And what happens in Galsif 2 is when you're playing against AI and you're applying like an insane amount of pressure on him and the AI feels like it has no chance of winning, it basically surrenders to somebody it it can surrender to you but usually it doesn't usually it really hates you at that point so it'll surrender to one of your enemies and that surrender really bolsters that enemy's forces and all of a sudden somebody who might not have been a candidate for defeating you has become a runaway winner and that's one example another example is age a more recent one is age of wonders 3 and in age of wonders 3 it's it's similar to a degree where if you're putting all this pressure on an ai you know you're hitting them at every angle you're about to take their city you're about to kill their general you know their hero their main hero you're you're going to wipe them out they surrender but what happens is is that when they surrender they i believe that the only one, only the capital city goes yep. to to the right the capital city goes yep. to the faction they surrender to and all the other cities become independents so let's say you're fight let's say you're fighting uh, i don't know maybe you're fighting like the uh tigrans and they have a whole bunch of cities and all over the place the capital will go to whoever they surrender to, and then the rest of the city is independent. So it's not like, you know, that other faction all of a sudden became incredibly powerful. It's just that now you have all these independents with full-on armies and whatnot that you have to contend with. So I, f I find that a good way to speed up that process, at least for myself. Yeah, and so just to follow up on what Nate was saying with Age of Wonders 3, what's really awesome about it is on one hand it is um, – you know, kind of bringing the end about more quickly because you know you don't you don't have to chase down every last little settlement or city belonging to your rival. And then at the other 
uh, on the other side of the coin, what's pretty cool about it is that those cities that become independent can now be swooped up by the other empires that you're competing against. So in theory, they might be able to get a leg up on you a little bit um, because of that surrender mechanic, which is really um, similar to uh, on some of the older Total War games. They had this realm divide mechanic. It was kind of a rubber banding type of mechanic, but they did it through diplomacy where the character or the empire that was furthest along towards getting to victory um, all of the other empires would sort of artificially uh, form a bunch of alliances and gang up on you to, uh, to try and kind of rein in whoever was the leader. Um, you know, it leads to a little bit of a, uh, you know, kind of kill the leader kind of syndrome or bash the leader syndrome. But at the same time, you know, it's a way of making that end stage of the game really tense and exciting because there's a lot of stuff happening. Um, and that kind of relates a little bit to... Um, Another idea, which is kind of games that provide multiple different means of sort of attacking so that it's not just all about like direct uh, direct warfare as a means of attacking, but that there's other ways to kind of circumvent that um, that might let you achieve victory in a way that maybe you didn't really expect. Right. So one example of that would be Civ Six with the religion victory, where the religious you can chase religion down. You can build buildings that build up your religion. You get religious units. But um, the religious units and the military units don't really interact at all, which sometimes can be really annoying when you really want to get those priests off your land. But um, basically, you can create religious units and use those to fight other religious units and push toward a religion victory in Civ Six, where if no one else can catch up to your lead in religion, then uh, you're granted the victory. So it's, it's almost like an alternate military victory where instead of taking cities by force you're taking cities by religion and spreading across the globe that way yeah and i i think something that's really cool about that is this you know this idea of kind of an orthogonal means of attack right like and i haven't played civ 6 extensively so maybe yeah. you can correct me if i'm wrong on this but you know like so many of these games like you know especially on the military side if you have a big base of production you know in your military industrial complex is going full speed it's really easy to just run over somebody else because you have this industry advantage that leads into a military advantage but you know if you can do a religious victory or sort of attack people through using religious units that's maybe not as tied to your production capacity right and it lets you kind of okay. get at somebody another from another angle yeah, I mean, you know, we could get into a whole list of sure. what's wrong with Civ Six, but um, in the sense of that, strategically, that makes sense, yes. Um, ideally, you would be able to look at the mid-game and say, boy, you know, there's no way I'm catching up on military. There's no way I'm catching up on science. I'm going to focus on religion and run right. these guys into the ground that way. And theoretically, that is correct. That strategically, that's a nice option and a good way to go about. In practice, the way that Civ Six works, if you don't commit to a path in the beginning of the game, that path is then closed to you. Right. But at least theoretically on paper, that's a good idea, and I agree. Yeah, so sort of a difference of reality versus uh, the conceptual yeah, <laughs> theoretical agreed, side agreed. of it. But like in a board game sense, right, if we were playing yep. That way, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm, I'm uh, as many people probably know, I'm an Age of Wonders three fanboy, and I think a lot of it uh, comes down to some of these ways it handles victory, um, because it also has this sort of orthogonal means of attack piece through the assassination system, where if you can kill their main leader hero and capture their throne city, which is where their leader has to respawn, 
they're instantly knocked out of the game that way too. And um, it doesn't do it with a different set of units like the religious units in Civ, but you know, I've played multiplayer games of Age of Wonders 3 where I'm way behind on uh, you know, military and my force is you know, half the size of my opponents, but I managed to sneak a handful of units around his back line, capture the throne city, do an all-in attack to kill his leader, and suddenly you know, my opponent has lost um, through this very crafty and sneaky system, and I, I really like that. Um, another another way of kind of improving on the status quo too, and I think Stellaris um, is a game that tackles this in a few different ways, is kind of having catch-up mechanics or mechanics that uh, maybe increase kind of the upkeep cost or the or how fast somebody who's in a strong leader position can continue to grow. They kind of slow them down a little bit as a way of uh, letting other people catch up and keep the game a little bit more tense. Um, so I know I know Stellaris does a little bit of that. Mark? Um, they do. The biggest way that they do it is the, the malice that you get by expanding your borders and how many planets that you own and how many pops that you have towards your unity and your science mm-hmm. costs. So what they do, uh, obviously, is that um, playing wide in every game will always benefit you economically in, in almost all 4X games. So the idea being is that Stellaris... Um, gives you some type of um, payoff for playing taller or at least a smaller empire to be able to out-tech your larger, wider opponents. Um, that's their main beef, or that's their main way of doing a catch-up mechanic. There are other smaller ones. Um, the war exhaustion system is kind of based along that way. The idea being is that um, it's all based off of how many units that you have lost in a particular battle based off of your capacity, your total capacity of your naval, your naval capacity cap. So a smaller empire could lose more ships and not gain as much war exhaustion versus a larger empire that can use uh, lose a smaller amount that a larger cap. So they've kind of balanced it that way a few ways. Um, and then there's a couple smaller ones like uh, force disparity, smaller units, smaller fleets will get a slightly um, a slight in combat bonus versus larger fleets because they're. I guess the idea is that a smaller fleet's easier to. Um, coordinate and um, a few other smaller mechanics, but um, for in terms of rubber band kind of catch up mechanics, that's I think the the most of it that I can think of. I think that Josh could probably weigh in a little bit on Stellaris. What do you think, Josh? Well, I was just going to say, do you feel like the catch up mechanics feel a little cheap? Um, like, here's the I mean, deal. So, I, like, I play a lot of Mario Kart, right? Every, people who listen to enough of the podcast know that I play a lot of Mario Kart. Um, and the blue shell always feels like I understand why the blue shell is in there from a like a gameplay standpoint. But you never feel good having one one because you hit somebody with a blue shell, or two lost because somebody hit you with a blue shell. And so it feels like, you know, especially in a long game like Stellaris, where you've spent a lot of time building the ultimate engine and getting everything and doing everything correct, and then you end up losing or, you know, it's tough to lose in Stellaris, but feeling like all your work was for nothing because of a catch-up mechanic that was built into the game, doesn't that feel cheap? Truth be told, I don't think that it really applies too heavily on Stellaris because the victory conditions are so, are are useless. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only that, but the whole victory condition is completely null by the endgame crisis. You can have the most brilliant and amazing start of your game and the most powerful empire. 
but if the unbidden or the um, swarm end up in your sector of space when the endgame crisis occurs, it doesn't matter how good you are. The odds are you're going to be, if you cannot, if you do beat them, you're not going to be the superpower you once were. So catch-up mechanics in Stellar specifically don't feel cheap, but I do think that you have hit the nail on the head when it comes to the feeling cheap in a game that's more tightly closed on to actual victory conditions. 100% agreed. Yeah, I think about, um, uh, like, well, Endless Space 2 jumps to mind, too, but, you know, almost any of the 4X games seems like a staple mechanic is as you get more cities, you just, your population universally gets less happy. And I'm not sure that's such a great thing. Um, You know, like you said, it can seem like a little bit of a... uh, uh, you know, it can seem like a little bit of a kind of a cheap thing, but anyway, Nate, you wanted to add something onto this. I did. <clears throat> My issue with Stellaris in that regard is that the the population mechanics are constantly changing, and since they're constantly updating the game, what works for one version might not necessarily work the same way for another one. So it's it's a little I don't know that the catch up aspect of it, and I I know that from earlier versions. I think up until 1.5, the penalties and the benefits of running wide versus running tall were different, and you couldn't you couldn't even play it tall. And then after, uh, f- I think it was like 1.8 that they started letting you play tall, and then in 2.0 you could actually play a little tall. So I don't know, that might be a little tough. But what you said about with endless space, yeah, endless space too. That's definitely the case, and. The way they compensate for it is some of the factions are much better at playing wide versus some that are not. So they kind of they're, they're kind of giving you an option. You can't and you can't even play too wide with some with the ones that are not good at it because even with the happiness technologies, that's not enough to compensate for the fact that the people do not want to have a, a you know galaxy spanning empire. You know, so yes or no, I agree and I disagree a little bit, but I mean, maybe that leaves room for somebody to come in and really do something interesting there, you know? Yeah, another example of catch-up mechanics that I've played with in the past are something like Planet Killers in Sins of a Solar Empire Rebellion. Like, I remember playing the game, especially when I was learning the game, and I was finally getting good, I was finally making progress and, and taking over some of my enemy's territory. My enemy got a space cannon and started blasting all my planets, and I had to stop everything I was doing, change my production to defensive units, change my research into uh, protection, planetary protection systems, rather than researching new weapons and, and new ships and, and this sort of thing. So, like, that really halted my advance for a long time. And then it made me change my tactics because I had to find the planet where the the space cannon was. I couldn't go after maybe their best planets or their capital planets anymore. I had to find the space cannon because my That's production awesome. yep. was just getting obliterated there. So I don't know. Um, something like that. It's you like, know, Civ 1 and Civ 2 had nukes that you could use without the massive penalties and suddenly everybody just uh, ganging up on you. I think starting with Civ 3, um, the, the rules for nuclear weapons kind of changed in civilization. And... Um, so, you know, I, I also got to thinking that maybe there should be something conditional in the tech tree that you could research when you're falling behind, and it would give you, like, a big boost in money, you know, gold or, or space credits or whatever, uh, or a big boost in, 
influence or whatever the diplomatic currency is or religious currency, whatever, you know, that it would only appear in your tech tree when you're losing, when you've lost cities or planets or something like that. So anyway, uh, that's just another example of catch-up mechanics that I've played with. Yeah, and um, Joshua wants to weigh in too. I'll just add one thing to it and then maybe he can respond to that too. You know, I think something that's interesting that we talk about here is you know, some of these mechanics are like slowing down the leader versus I think, Troy, what you were just saying is creating things that, you know, like if you're the cat backed in the corner, like you get some like sweet bonus to your claw attack, right? And that lets right. you, you know, if you're the person that's behind, like give them something to help them get up instead of like having a system that takes the person who's in the lead and pulls them back. So, um, that might just be, that's kind of something to think about. I hadn't, hadn't quite thought about it in that way, but uh, Joshua, yeah. Yeah, so Civ Six actually kind of has a mechanic that does that with the Dark Ages. So when you oh, right. yeah. have a Dark Age, you get special policy cards that are only available to you when you're in the Dark Age that give you huge bonuses in exchange for huge sacrifices. So it, it kind of is doing like what you guys were talking about where – you know, um, just because you're down doesn't mean you're out. It doesn't hurt the people who are in front, but it gives you a chance to take a big risk and maybe come back into it really quickly and sort of roar back, if it, as it were. Yeah, that's that's very cool. So uh, just to, to round out uh, last couple of thoughts on uh, this topic about kind of improving the status quo, you know, something that we don't hear a lot about, you know, a lot of these 4X games include an economic victory or a technology victory or a cultural victory. And none of these, to me, seem all that interesting. They're all tend to be very um, kind of things that you pursue in isolation, very multiplayer, solitaire kind of feeling experiences where you're just mindlessly researching to the next tech um, to get to that ultimate tech uh, or, you know, just building a wonder and sitting there hitting end turn while you wait for the wonder to finish. But I guess the question is, you know, are there some games that are maybe doing something different or, or to make this those kinds of victories a little bit more interactive and interesting. So, uh, Nate, you got something you want to add? Yeah, actually, there's a, a recent release, or re- recent, <laughs> I take it back, a recent review that I wrote for a game that came out not so recently, Oriental Empires, has that with the that, that game's version of a cultural victory, and the way that you, normally the way cultural victory victories goes you're trying to get a certain amount of you know wonders maybe if you get this many wonders you win or maybe or economic victory you have to reach this threshold so much gold or dust or you know whatever the economic uh, currency in the game happens to be but in oriental empires even though you are trying to win a cultural victory there are other players trying to do the same so the way it works is you have to meet two conditions first you have the the bare minimum is you have to have 50 cultural points so you have to build pagodas you have to you know uh build the taoist and uh, shaolin temples and all the all confucian temples and you know you got to do all that stuff which everybody's doing right but then you're also doing research and you're you know you're uh doing through various acts and things you do and what you need that's different here is that you need to have 50% of the no, the number two guy. So the runner-up. So let's say you, you're you about to reach 50 points, but the next one up is at 30 points. Then that means you actually need 65 points in order to get that cultural victory. So that's, I mean, again, you're 
you're counting beans or, you know, whatever you want to call it, but at least it's not the typical of first one to 50 wins because if a bunch of them are close, then you won't win by this, even though you've been planning to win like this from the beginning. You just cannot gain them enough. You actually have to take some of their cities away. You have to go to war. You have to get into alliances. You have to do something. You have to be more proactive to win a cultural victory. It's not just a, oh, I got 50, I win, yay. You know? Yeah, and it, and what I think is cool about that is it's taking something like that's typically not very interactive, and it makes it suddenly like there's an actual interaction between your empire and the other empire. You know, the second place guy, like you having that's creating some sort of challenge that you have to try and work around. That if it was just an arbitrary threshold, you know, that would be it. So, um, just so you know, as a way of kind of wrapping up this section, just something to throw out to the group here. Um, you know, do people do people kind of like the direction that this is going? Um, you know, I've I got some comments to the article with where people basically said in not so blunt terms, um, you know, you can't change the kind of domination style victory conditions here because that's what forex games are. And you know, maybe you agree or don't agree with that point, but um, you know, how do people how do people think about the kinds of things that we've talked about? You know, making the end happen sooner or catch up mechanics trying to make these conventional victory systems better, more interactive. They feel satisfactory to people. Is this a essential direction to go in? Um, is there, do we want more out of, out of these games? What do, what do people think? Anyone? So well, I think the obvious answer is no. And the reason is because we all have multiple examples of games that are doing all those things. And we're still complaining about the end game. Right. I think yep. that they can't be satisfactory if we are, you know, we can come up with multiple of examples of, well, this is how Civ Six does it. This is how Age of Wonders 3 does it. This is how, you know, um, uh, Gal Civ does it. And we all sort of sit here and then say, yeah, but the end game is boring and no one finds it enjoyable. So I think the obvious answer to your question, Oliver, is that it's not satisfactory. Whether it's intrinsic to 4X or not, I think is a different question honestly yeah 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 that's true but there's also a tradition in forex that's there's i'll give you an example with master of Orion conquer the stars because they moved away from what people were expecting the traditionalist the old-timey fans the game didn't sell as well so you're walking a razor thin line here about you know you know, going at it the way everybody's always gone at it or trying something different. You always have to keep that in mind. Um, you know, I'm always interested in killing everybody and having a good time doing that. But after the first time, that gets really old. Uh, you know, I did it in Endless Space 2. I actually played a game where I conquered every single planet and it was a real big pain because the game doesn't want you to play that way, but I did it anyway, and it was fun. But I'm also open to new things. And so, you know, doing the faction quests and that sort of thing for victories or or whatever else, you know, I don't think you can lose the conquest or domination victory, but there do need to be just as viable and perhaps even more interesting alternatives put out there instead. Yeah, Mark, you want to chime in too? You know, I I read an article and I don't know and I can't I can't cite it as as you know uh, like uh, straight from the Bible. But that being said, I do recall and I, I think it was a developer saying that the uh, that domination victory was the number one victory condition that most forex players ended up achieving or going for in the end. Now they might use a scientific advancement, but only to increase their tech to make better units to 
achieve that victory. Um, for me personally, every Civ game that has given me the option, I will turn off religious victories, cultural victories, science victories, because I want to play a domination game. Oftentimes, I won't completely take over every city, but I will want to want at least to impose my will over the different nations to the point where I know that they are no longer a threat to me. So to me, I don't think that more, for me personally, this is my opinion, I don't think more victory conditions are necessarily the answer, but how we achieve the ones that we have should be more interesting by offering different paths to get there that aren't so hamstring to the point where immediately, as soon as you're seeing your setting, when you're about to do your first settlement or your first planet, you know exactly what path you're going to go down to based off of the resources or minerals that are in and around that city or planet. I would 100% agree with that, Mark. I mean, I think a really good example of that is Age of Wonders 3, which is very combat-based, and I don't have any problem with the fact that it's a domination-type victory. So I don't know that it's necessarily about adding more so much as it is about making them interesting in some way. Yeah, exactly. Yep, I would, I would agree with that, too. And, and we'll touch on... Um, a couple of these, couple of these points, I think we'll circle back to. Um, Age of Wonders three is another example of how they've kind of tweaked those victory conditions in ways that you know are still reliant on the military stuff, but you know offer a kind of a different experience too. So, um, well, good. Well, let's. I think this is probably a good point to transition over. Um, you know, if we if we kind of look at the spectrum of you know where we are in terms of victory conditions on 4x games. You know, one end of the spectrum is let's come up with really crazy radical new ideas um, or alternative means of achieving victory and kind of what that means. But the other end of the spectrum is, you know, maybe there shouldn't be victory conditions at all on these games. And, um, you know, when I look at a lot of the influences that are uh, shaping 4X games today, um, and then also a lot of the games that are just really popular right now, for instance, uh, RimWorld, which finally came out of Early Access, um, at their 1.0 release, um, Paradox's grand strategy titles, so uh, uh, EU4, Crusader Kings 2, and so on. These are games that really focus more on kind of the simulation and the sandbox kind of gameplay, um, where players are setting their own goals and you sort of exist within this uh, sandbox framework. And so there's not really formal victory conditions um, in those games, but it may be, you know, survive from time period A to time period B, or just continue to kind of sur- survive and thrive like in RimWorld, where you're building up your colony. Um, you don't suddenly win um, the game, you just continue to build. It continues to be this world that you're inhabiting and, and living within. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, Stellaris kind of falls into an interesting category here. And I think, Mark, you mentioned earlier, maybe Joshua, you mentioned it, that you know, Stellaris has victory conditions, but nobody really pays a whole lot of attention to those. That's not really what the game is about. doesn't quite feel right. So I don't know if uh, if anybody had thoughts they wanted to add kind of onto this idea or examples of games that um, have just sort of avoided the question of victory conditions. And what do we get out of that um, in, in exchange for moving away from a victory condition? Are there things that really uh, strengthen the game in, in ways that maybe we didn't expect? Well, it, um, I'm pretty sure Josh and I can kind of go back and forth a few times here when it comes to Stellaris. I'm going to rip him off completely here by him mentioning something in the previous podcast that says that what makes Stellaris kind of great is that it's weird. It's strange. It doesn't conform very diligently to some of the 4X tropes that we would have expected. One of them being there's the victory conditions. Um, if you were to look back at Stellaris 
1.0, the victory conditions was very much a a hindrance. A lot of people had a lot of complaints about it. I remember it being a, a big sticking point. People saying, well, how do you know the game just, you know, how do I get to the end of the game? Because there wasn't so much meat. There wasn't a lot of things you could actually do. But did in they, the imp- Just a clarifying question. Did they totally eliminate that in one of the patches? No, they did not. They still exist. Okay, okay but okay, you can just kind of ignore it, though, for the most part. Uh, yeah, I mean, in fact, I've in so many of my games... Personally, I have. Uh, in fact, they've added a, a victory condition. It, it's um, you can add. Well, you can be a part of an, uh, a federation that encompasses so many of the percentage of colonized or colonizable planets, and still hit that victory condition. So they added that. It's inconsequential, but I I, I will often always play past that. But the reason that um, I think that that cr- criticism has left the the planescape is because with the implementation of uh, Utopia. They introduce so many different interesting mechanics that are great for role playing, that are really interesting to play out in terms of on a, on a strategic level, that have nothing to do with the actual conquest or, or achievement of that victory condition, but are just really fun and interesting ways to, to play the game. One of the great things that I hear about Amplitude is that the Endless Space series. And the Endless Legends series has a great asymmetrical gameplay system where so many different things uh, can play in the same playing field and be, at some point, in uh, some way, balanced amongst themselves as they race towards a victory condition. What I think that Stellaris has done has given you so many different tools in your sandbox to play with that have nothing to do with the victory condition that they set out at the beginning of the game and more about your own personal feeling is that the right way that you're feeling about the way that your empire is going to progress and its progression through the entire game so i think it's more about that rpg element about how you connect with your empire versus seeing it as a tool to manipulate optimize to get to a victory condition in the very end i I don't know if you feel that same way josh what do you think so actually, I think that the way that the victory conditions are defined in Stellaris, you almost have to ignore them in order to play the game because they're almost so impossible to achieve. It's a game about being huge, and then you have to take over the whole universe. Um, but I think that you know, because I'm a, I'm actually a pretty big proponent of the idea of removing victory conditions. I think it's sort of retro in uh, a game system that has evolved beyond its board gaming roots. Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily correct that we should be ignoring them completely i understand people that play stellaris and don't understand what they're supposed to be doing because they're not they're not getting the narrative and it makes stellaris really sort of um hit or miss because depending on where you're placed in the universe you can get very lucky and get something that's really interesting story-wise or you can end up in the middle of nowhere and then a hundred not turns but you know um uh, i'll say uh, you know a couple hours pass and you wonder what the heck you're doing so i wonder if there's sort of a world of a victory-less game that attempts to sort of get the best of both worlds. So I'll I'll try to stop being so opaque. So one thought I've had is to create sort of what I would describe as um, an aggressively achievement-based economy, where basically there are hundreds of achievements throughout the game that challenge you to try to accomplish different things within the game state so that there's really no, in like a game like Stellaris, right, there's no quote-unquote ultimate victory, which honestly, right, even like a game like Civ, right, nobody ever really, Civ's attempting to give you the feeling of being nations in the real world, but no one's ever really won at Civ. It's just, you know, there are times where different nations have different um, dominance uh, in the, you know, the sort of historical tapestry. So does it make more sense to 
not pretend that there's sort of an ultimate victory, which sounds un- seems unrealistic, and instead have different sort of conditions that you can attempt to try um, with different races, with different factions, uh, and, you know, with with different um, you know philosophical beliefs for your um, for who you create. So you're basically being set with certain challenges that you can try to accomplish, and so you still have that feeling of well, I know what I'm trying to do here, and I know what quote unquote victory looks like. But it removes the necessity of having an end game and these sort of arbitrary, you know, I think the kinds of victory conditions that we're used to having would be subsumed under the idea of achievements, where you could dominate culturally in Civ, and that's getting an achievement. Um, But there are also other things like, uh, you know, um, winning militarily aggressively with a nation that isn't given bonuses for military or things like that. Endless Legend does some of this, uh, I think, pretty well with achievements. And I wonder if that's a way to sort of get the best of both worlds. Yeah, and I think, you know, this discussion kind of that, Joshua, that you and you and Mark are having is kind of right at the crux of, I think, some of my angst that's not a surprise to anybody around sort of Stellaris. And, you know, something that I, I think is, is, is really interesting about this kind of achievement-driven idea is that you know, I think the people that get a lot of mileage out of Stellaris come at it from kind of this role-playing standpoint where, um, you know, those achievements that you mentioned are almost like, you know, they're self-directed goals, right? You know, the game has no big victory condition, but you say, hey, I'm going to play as, you know, the hamster hive mind amoeba race, and I'm going to try to enslave all these people and, you know, make, uh, you know, make a whole game playthrough that's based on that, because I think that's cool from a narrative standpoint or from a kind of a role-playing standpoint. So I think that's where, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but those kind of self-directed goals and whether it ties into an achievement system as kind of a set of challenges um, that players could try and work towards seems to be kind of one way that the genre could start to go that kind of falls into this more uh, simulation mode of of playing these games. So, um, Mark, though, you wanted to follow up on something too. Just I just want to say that by... Deciding to go away from the typical victory conditions, Stellaris has been able to enhance that narrative in that uh, the, the very beginning of the game that it's renowned for. Despite any changes that the game has made or criticisms, I think everybody can universally agree that the beginning part of Discovery and the anomaly system that they have set forward has been awesome. The writing, the the, the excitement of everything, of discovering anomalies and, and uh, following down different quest paths is actually very exciting. The really cool part that Paradox, I think, did from a design standpoint by getting away from an actual 4X victory condition into what you said, Oliver, in a simulation is being able to provide rewards for the char- for the characters, for the players, uh, for the nations that are more profound than it would have been in a in a more structured 4X environment. Like the worm in waiting is one of those um, amazing anomalies that you can go through, and it has several different uh, several different branching paths that you can choose to go off. Some of them are game breakingly large bonuses that you can do in the game. From an actual standpoint of a victory condition that could be completely unbalanced and break the game. So I could see if you were handcuffed into what you wanted to make as a victory condition, the worm in waiting would have had to been substantially reduced to the point where its impact wouldn't be so great that it is without a victory condition where you can do something so amazing that it changes the actual fundamental nature of the game that you started, perhaps 
like you said, it was a, I had a hamster hive mind at the beginning of, of starting my Stellaris game. But at the end of that particular event, you could be a completely different race by the time you hit the end game crisis. I think and that, that kind of, go oh, ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I just wanted to chime in here real quick before, before Nate jumps in. You know, this is, I think that's a really uh, insightful, insightful point because um, if things are, you know, I think one of the things that Stellaris does too that's very cool is, of course, you know, you can have empires that are starting off, you know, super advanced and some that are primitive and maybe they'll never become, you know, an enlightened spacefaring race or anything like that. You know, you can start off at all these different points and your competition can start off at all these different points. And so long as you're not trying to win through sort of a strict victory condition, you know, it's kind of all good. It makes it okay. It makes it acceptable because it's within this more kind of complex simulated universe instead of this sort of game environment that you're trying to go uh, play through towards a victory condition. But I'm sorry, Nate, I I, uh, jumped the gun on you, so I'll let you jump in. No, no, it's okay. So, yeah, I, I like, I, I agree with what Mark is saying. And the worm and waiting in Stellaris is, it is a really unique chain or, or a chain of quests that can go, depending on how you do it, can go in different directions. And they really do impact your overall gameplay. But that's not the only one. There are other ones in there that are equally impactful in different ways. So that's that's definitely one of the strengths of the narrative in Stellaris and the role-playing aspect of it. Now, when, you, when you're talking achievements, I'm assuming you're not talking about stuff like Steam achievements. I'm talking about like personal goals you set for yourself as some as a player of a game, right? No, I think it could be Steam achievements too. I mean, so, you could formalize it. Go ahead, Josh. You, you, that was your thing. So, yeah, I mean, I could see it working within the game or within Steam. Um, you know, I think from a mechanical standpoint, like Nate, just to give an example, and then I'll let you jump back in. Something that I always think about is you talking about what you did with the Dragon Race with Endless Legend, how you kept playing until you could get the win without ever having war declared or declaring war. Yes, like that's that like, to me is exactly the kind of example of the gameplay I'm thinking about. And whether that happens within the Steam environment or whether that happens within mm-hmm. the game itself, I think either is is viable. Well, that's that has to do with the fact that the developers of the game... So some games will just throw just a bunch of junk achievements in there just to have junk achievements. So they can say they have 200 or 1,000 or 3 or whatever. Other games don't have any at all because, you know, they don't care. They're like, we don't care about Steam achievements. You're playing this to have fun, not for Steam achievements. But Stellar's... Um, Endless Space, Endless Legend, Age of Wonders, uh, who, if Warlock 2 or Galsiv or whatnot, you know, all of them have these that if you're trying to go for them, you have to play a certain style maybe. But what's interesting about Stellaris and other games from Paradox is that you have, to, in order to get achievements, you have to play an Iron Man mode, which is essentially you can't scum save. So you have your one original save and that's it. If Let's say you're playing the game and something really bad happens. You can't try to you know play it from an earlier save because, oh, that's it. You know, you're locked in. And that's how you get your achievements. And the interesting thing is that that also addresses modding. So some of the mods for the game impact the actual gameplay. And those kind of mods disable those achievements in the you know Iron Man's mode. And the ones that are just cosmetic and don't impact at all leave it intact. And that's, again, that's something interesting because you know the, the developers of the game have a certain... In their heads, they have a certain beat that they would like for the game to have. Even if we play it differently than them, even if we are having a completely unique experience, 
there's still there's something that they're trying to get out of us or at us. So that you know that's interesting. I kind of like that. And at the same time, I hate it because you're forced <laughs> to play like you're either forced to play perfectly or if you make a little mistake, you have to start a new one and play another 20 hours to get to that point. So cool. Well, I'm going to I'm going to move us on to the third and kind of final section here of this discussion, which is kind of going back and, and rethinking maybe what victory means at kind of a fundamental level. And um, something that got me thinking about this, um, you know, years ago, our friends over at Three Moves Ahead did a um, a podcast kind of talking about 4X games. And one of the comments, I can't remember who it was that said it, but basically said, you know, oh, God, I'm tired of sort of reliving this uh, colonization scenario and conquest and domination scenario over and over again. And, you know, can't we be thinking about some different goals that uh, are different victory conditions? Or maybe it's not even victory, but it's a different endpoint in the game that kind of changes the whole arc and the whole fundamental structure of what the game is in a way that um, provides a very different experience. And maybe you're still exploring and you're expanding and you're fighting and you're doing all of that, but it's all organized around something very, very different. Um, and so, you know, we are fortunate that there's some games that are starting to break into this direction. Um, and we often talk about those as kind of asymmetric designs or games where there's a very, um, I'm not talking about faction asymmetry, but where the asymmetry exists between, you know, what the player is doing or what empires analogous to the player are doing versus some other force or presence in the game that operates at a very different level. So uh, there's a few examples here we can touch on, just one that might be a good reference point for people. Um, and also since the second version of it just came out, um, but AI War and now AI War 2 was a great example of a very asymmetric style, uh, 4X style game where, um, you know, as a, as a, as a, as the player, you start off with this tiny little insignificant empire and you eventually want to overthrow this monstrous giant AI controlled empire. Um, but you have to do that in a way by kind of balancing how big you're getting and how stealthy you are and all of these other things. So the force that you're fighting against is, is very asymmetric, and so it provides kind of a different structure and a different goal or a, or a different objective to try and overcome than just competing against kind of peer empires towards a common set of victory conditions. And I think and there are some other examples of it, like Thea, that comes to mind. Um, is another good one. So mm-hmm. uh, I'll jump in on that. Day War Two is it's a grand strategy game with art. It's an RTS and it's grand strategy. So yeah, I'm, people are going to be saying all kinds of stuff, but it definitely has a lot of similarities to typical 4X games too, which makes it a very kind of like a hybrid, very unique crossover title. And then you have Thea. So Thea: The Awakening, the first game, is very different than a lot of 4X games because you only have your one village. You don't, you're not growing an empire. You're not, I don't think in any of my games I ever got up. I think the most villagers I ever had, maybe 80, maybe. So it's not like, you know, you're not building up a giant town of thousands of people or an empire with hundreds of thousands of millions. And you're not, there are no other AI factions on the board. You're, it's you against the world. It's survival. You know, it's a post-apocalypse. You're, you're a worshiper of a god. You're trying to get your god back into God's favor, figure out what happened. There's all these other things going on. So it's very asymmetrical in that nature. 
And now with Thea 2, which is going to be, in, I think, entering early access sometime in November, maybe early December, that's going to be more of a 4X because now you are able to have more than one battlefield because this is very small scale. So it should be interesting to see what they do there. Yeah, and then there are a couple other games I think I'd like to toss in there as asymmetric. Uh, the first is Sorcerer King and Sorcerer King Rivals. Now, the original Sorcerer King, I think, was a bit more asymmetric. It was you with some like minor factions or, or neutral factions that you could convince to help you through various quests, but it was essentially you versus the Sorcerer King. The Sorcerer King had all kinds of armies and castles and a capital city that you had to find by collecting keys to unlock it. And um, the, the thing I really liked about the original Sorcerer King quite a bit was the final fight against the Sorcerer King himself. It is the most epic fight I think I've ever played in a 4X game. You have your heroes that you've been building up the whole game, along with your most elite units, and throughout the game you're crafting armor and weapons and equipment for not just your heroes, but also your units. So you've built them up a lot. You've invested so much time and material into these, and there's no guarantee you win when you get into that last battle because you don't know exactly which of the powers the Sorcerer King is going to have in that particular battle and then it might not even matter. He's very powerful and he's he's summoning all these monsters and there's these lightning bolts and things flying everywhere and it's indoors. It takes place, or at least when I played it, um, you can't really get the original Sorcerer King anymore. It, was, it almost took place in like this unholy church type thing and the, so the setting was beautiful and just very evocative. And so I would have to put that up there as like one of the best ways to end a 4X game is just this titanic fight against a monster that, uh, that man, you, you just have no way to comprehend uh, until you actually face him for the first time. Now, the, the second... You know, uh, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Try it. No, I'll just add one quick thing. You know, we often... Uh, as 4X gamers, we often talk about the sort of one big battle syndrome, right? Where it's like you're playing against like the next most powerful empire and you have like one big fleet space battle right. and like that decides the game. And then you have hundreds of turns to like wrap up after that. And I think what you were just saying about that is great, right? The whole arc of the game builds up to this one battle and it's like a do or die moment, right? You're either going to win it or lose it on that. And I think that's, you know, talk about creating tension. Like that's a cool thing to 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 work towards so anyway yeah yeah it was a shame the rest of the game wasn't executed as well as the climax because it's pretty good now sorcerer king rivals which is the version you can buy now doesn't really focus so much on on defeating the sorcerer king in battle i mean you can still do that but you have like this mana pool that you can fill up and once you do you can cast a spell of domination to win it's kind of like the spell of mastery in master of magic so Anyway, I think I think it lo- kind of lost something there. And then another game I've been playing recently is Space Tyrant, where you play the tyrant. You're the you're the sorcerer king. You're the bad guy, and uh, you have all these fun abilities that you can use, but that your enemy can't. And you're playing against neutral planets and then a senate. And the neutrals can get scared of you and join the senate. And when they do. Well, for one thing, their fleet changes. They lose their neutral ships and they gain Senate ships. And then sometimes, like, they'll just get an extra Senate fleet. It'll just pop up out of nowhere. And sometimes those fleets are huge. 
And so now you have a huge problem to deal with, whereas before it was looking like you would just have uh, just a few small ships to mop up. So as a game progresses, the the AI I don't I don't want to call it cheating, but because it's it's, it's scripted. It's like an asymmetric thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, all of a sudden something that was looking very easy becomes very very difficult, and you're going to lose something that's valuable to you in order to win. So I, I think that's another interesting way of doing it there in Space Tyrant. Yeah, and so maybe a question to the group here, um, and I think you know Nate mentioned this earlier, um, just when he was talking about Thea, that you know are these even 4X games, right? Or or in reference to AI War, you know, saying it's kind of an RTS hybrid kind of thing. Um, you know, these games that are sort of built around a very different structure that's not that conventional kind of domination kind of structure are, um, you know, I think this is in some ways is kind of a an issue for the growth and the development of the genre as a whole, because, you know, what do we what do we call these? Are these just strategy games? You know, do we sort of talk about them as 4X games? I mean, Thea is very different from a traditional 4X, yet, you know, I think deservedly so, it won, you know, one of our 4X Game of the Year awards. Um, and, you know, I think I think this is a really tricky um, tricky position that, you know, the genre is in because there seems like there's so much uh, fertile ground for exploring really interesting asymmetric designs. And it even kind of goes back to, the question we were having previously about Stellaris and, you know, do you just do away with victory entirely and have other goals or objectives? Well, these very asymmetric designs seem like there's that might be a way to kind of craft a whole gameplay experience around something that's very different. Um, and yet, you know, I think it's a lot of people might disparage these games for not being enough of a 4X not give them maybe the attention that they deserve or they fire it up and start playing it and they're like, this is not what I expected. This is totally weird and different. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's just, it's it's a tricky spot for the genre to be in. So, um, Nate, you want to add something onto it? Yes. First of all, I want to say, yes! Um, this is how 4X has to change because the people that are, if, if you're, you can make a traditional 4x game that gets the the you know the old time players you know the the experts the senior the senior players of the community but if you want to try and pull in some young players you want to bring in new blood you want to evolve it has to change so these games their approaches some of the ways you've got to do it so i think yeah 4x they are they might be 4x light or like or hybrids or some combination of those and maybe some other words but in essence absolutely um let's think about this for a second though let's examine all the games we really praised on this podcast so far tonight there's stellaris age of wonders 3 endless legend endless space 2 not a single one of those could really be called a traditional 4x game so what does that say uh well i i think well for what it's worth and i'll let joshua jump in i think to me, Endless Legend and Endless Space 2 feel very traditional. I think even... Yeah, I'd you can't win say, by killing everybody, though. Or you can, but it's nearly impossible, and it's not very fun. Yeah, but yeah, yes, no, I would agree with that. But I think traditional in the sense that, you know, there is a conquest victory, but there's also, you know, those victory conditions like, you know, an economic and a cultural or wonder and a science victory that have been kind of part of the genre for... You know, quite a while. Civ two, maybe, you know, maybe even the first Civ game. I can't remember. Which are all possible. Um, 
Yep. But they want you to play the quest victories the most. Those are the ones mm-hmm. where the game really funnels you toward. And you get yep. punished for trying to pursue the other ones. You really do. Yep. No, I, I would agree with that. So I think Joshua's on the deck next, and then, uh, Mark, you can jump in. Yeah, I was mostly I was just going to accuse you of um, backdooring <laughs> your article about classification. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to say anything. No, but um, so I think to your point, there can I think we can have a discussion about sort of like the range of how you evolve 4X. Because I think I, I would agree that while Endless Legend and Endless Space 2 feel very much like 4X, they include more of the role plan. There's a role playing aspect that yep. um, Amplitude has sort of woven in to those games that makes it a little different um, than sort of your traditional straight up 4X. Um, whereas something like Stellaris begins to move or Thea begin to move well beyond, not totally beyond what a 4X are, but you can start poking holes into them and say, well, I don't know if this really is 4X anymore. And so I, I think that there's probably a range as far as the innovation we're hoping to find, whereas you have something that feels very traditional but does a certain kind of twist, uh, like an endless legend or an endless space, and then you have something that's trying to maybe, not totally, but starting to redefine what 4X can be. You know, we've chosen sort of a very limiting way of describing what the genre is by defining it so specifically as those four sort of components. And we've had this conversation a million times before. But like if we look at what first person shooters were when they first came out and what first person shooters are now, they are very different. But because like something like, you know, the original Doom versus like what uh, Destiny 2 is now, like those are very different games. But because the genre was defined so broadly as basically a camera view of a guy holding a gun, you can evolve it very easily to add different mechanics and still have you someone say, yes, that's still a first-person shooter. 4X is so limited in its definition, and you know, I was teasing you about going back to your classification article, but I do think that you attempted to maybe work around that limitation because what happens is then if it's so specifically defined, it's really hard to evolve it. Because you say, well, it has to have these six qualities or these eight qualities, and then it's impossible to be something other than what it already is. Yeah, and and to uh, <laughs> and to uh, I mean, just on the point of the article, since since you all brought it up, um, I think the point of that article, though, this is the classification one, is to is to exactly this to build in the wiggle room and what people think about and talk about as four X games. So that they can be asymmetric or they can say, you know what, screw it. We're still going to do the empire building and exploration and, you know, you can beat up on your neighbors, but we're throwing all of the victory conditions in the trash bin and doing something completely different and weird. Um, So, you know, I think, you know, that was kind of the idea of that article to sort of build in the wiggle room that you don't have to hit all four or all six or all eight or all 12 or however many ultimately there are of these kind of key criterion, but you hit enough of them and it's got that 4X feeling, but you got the wiggle room to be innovative and to try some other different um, ideas. And so uh, I guess with that little plug out of the way, I think Mark wants to do some trolling or something. (laughs) So I'm just going to, I can't add anything to what Joshua had said, because as far as I'm concerned, he hit it right out of the park. I think one of the things that we have to consider all of us right now at the table is that we were brought into this genre with um, 
a lot of technical limitations of how we saw 4X because of how the gaming industry was able to provide us with information on the games we were playing. The reason we are, that 4X is so structured this way versus like a first-person shooter, which has seen huge technological advancements over the last 15 years, which has blown most people right out of the water. If you're really, if you're really old enough to remember Doom and then having played the new Doom... Or Wolfenstein course, 3D. Whatever you want, to, it doesn't matter. Pick Call of Duty, it doesn't matter. Pick the first Battle Warfare, it doesn't matter. Technical advancements have advanced the actual genre. For us, for years, 4X was stuck in that technological bubble. And although computing power has exponentially grown, our opinions and our expectations haven't. And it's funny because there's a lot of times when... I want to make sure I, I, I structure this completely. Any Anybody branches out of the 4X staple, we criticize it heavily. And we shouldn't. We should criticize it for being, not let's say, a, a fun game, but we shouldn't criticize it for trying to branch out of that bubble and trying to innovate. Um, Oliver, not the biggest Absolutely. fan of Stellaris. I'm a big fan of Stellaris for different reasons. But I don't think that Stellaris is doing everything perfectly. Paradox specifically, but I'm encouraging other developers that are strategy fans to look at it and go, you know what? Maybe maybe the end game crisis should be a victory condition, and we should wash away with domination. Maybe yep. we should make it more crafted. Maybe we should do it this way or that way. Maybe we should make it like you said earlier, make the game shorter and have victory conditions that are much more defined. The whole point is is that when you got a developer who's looking at forex in its whole and its in its lifespan and trying to appease all parties all we get is this you know this mismatch of different of 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 unfocused areas of the game where they should be either smaller or more broad but do away with some of these conditions altogether so one quick thing i want to add to that in the older 4x games and some of the newer ones this this victory condition that we're talking about here kind of exists and that's the grand menace so you have this victory condition that's outside the typical ones and not every 4x game had it It didn't make sense in every game but like some of the space games had it and a more recent one that has it that's not a space game is the warlock i believe warlock one warlock two they had it with in warlock one it was the dremors which was this faction invading so yeah they have stuff just not to the not to the level and to the complexity that we we have now. Yep. And so I'm going to move us on to the final little bit here too, because I think, so I've had <clears throat> kind of a, a hypothesis. I'm going to pontificate here for a second that um, I keep dreaming or imagining that maybe there could exist this idea of sort of the grand unification of 4X games, which is, trying to kind of change the fundamental nature of the game in some way that bridges the gap between, you know, the interesting role-playing kind of narrative, um, self-directed goal kind of thing that, you know, we were talking about, you know, that really shines in a game like Stellaris um, with also sort of more interesting strategy making and kind of real kind of challenging on the strategic side of the gameplay. And that also kind of marries that with a really interesting narrative or story that comes together um, so that's kind of something I've been um, really interested in, and I think there's a few games that start to get at this idea of uh, of a victory system that sort of unifies things very broadly. And so, you know, one example that comes to mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up Age of Wonders three again um, in the Seals victory, 
And so Age of Wonders 3, um, you know, as we've mentioned, is very war-centric. So got to kind of set get that out of the way first. But the seals, for those who don't know, it basically there's multiple little King of the Hill um, points that are scattered around the map, these seal locations. And you camp an army out on those spots. You get points over time. And then when you hit a certain limit of points, you can un- do this ritual, unlock these seals, and kind of win the game. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that is... Um, it creates this sort of victory point where, you know, everybody's fighting for control over these seals. Um, but it's not like, you know, all of the different pieces of your empire researching technology, researching different units, um, putting together different army stacks, leveling up your heroes. Those all funnel in towards this battle over controlling the seals. And I think something that's really important with that is that, you know, getting more seal points and, and, and earning points that way, it's not something that feeds right back into your economy. And in fact, it kind of slows you down. If you have an army camped out on the seals, they're not going out conquering other cities and building up your base of power. So I think that's kind of an interesting idea of unifying it. Another sort of, of weird example, and then I'll let others um, jump in, is one of my favorite 4X games, too, is Armada 2526. And in this game, there's victory points, and you usually play to a turn limit, so it's almost like a grand strategy game in that way. Um, but the victory points that you get are totally different depending on what your faction is. And so for a lot of factions, your your score is actually based on the happiness of your primary uh, species that's in your empire. And you can have multi-species empire and all this other stuff. Um, but so you know, going to war might actually reduce the happiness of your empire. So you don't really want to do that. You're actually wanting to play the game in a certain way that um, uh, builds up the happiness of your population. Some of the other empires, you know, the more militaristic ones, like they actually get points for winning battles. So it sort of forces you into that mode of doing that. And it kind of, each of those, you know, it's more tied to the narrative and the lore and the history of the race that you're playing and sort of what their motivations are, which is, I think, um, something that we've talked about in terms of Stellaris with maybe being um, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting idea of, you know, could there be victory conditions like that in a game like Stellaris, too? So I don't know if anybody wants to add on to that point. I think you got it. <laughs> you, I think you covered all yeah, the bases. That, We're all sitting here scratching yeah. our heads like, I don't know. What can that, I add to that? That was a home run. <laughs> home run. All right. Well, okay. Well, we'll let it, we'll let it go with there. Um, you know, just one other one to mention that, you know, it's a game, too, that doesn't doesn't get a lot of consideration as a 4x game um, as any of the total war games uh, don't really get considered as 4x but in total war warhammer 2 there's the vortex system Mm -hmm. which um, you know the different races are competing to get these kind of ritual points to cast the series of rituals to do this crazy weird magic spell with the vortex Um, but again that's a case where you know you're fighting and you're doing all the war stuff um, and then, you know, you don't, you know, you're doing these other things to try and get points to feed into this vi- uh, vortex victory that's very different from the kinds of activities that you'd normally be doing. So it's it's just a very neat way of kind of adding, um, uh, adding kind of a, a more narrative-based, very different way of achieving a goal. So Joshua or Troy, did you want to add something to that? Well, yeah, your your talk there about giving up something to gain something else uh, triggered in my mind um, the volcano spell in Master of Magic, and that was sort of a, a, a spell you got toward the end game. And what you could do with it is you could turn any tile into a volcano, which wrecked what 
ever was there before. So if there was a road or there were pastures or a forest or a deposit of gold or adamantium or something else, and you could take that away from your opponent, but the volcano would give you plus one mana per turn. And that doesn't sound like very much, especially toward the end game. But that plus one made the next volcano cast just a little bit easier. And it would make the next one a little bit easier and a little bit easier. So you're you're not casting spells. You're not making magic items for your heroes, which is a very common way to play Master of Magic to win. You're not casting the Spell of Mastery, which is another common way to win. You're using these volcano spells to build yourself up. Maybe you can't get to the Spell of Mastery. Maybe you can't research it because it requires so much research. You just don't have that. And at the same time, you're taking things away from your opponents. That, that kind of ties back into your catch-up mechanic idea from earlier in the podcast. So here's a spell you can cast. It takes a, it takes a little while to cast. You're going to tie up your, your casting ability and your spell book while you're casting it. But it's going to give you a bonus, and it's going to take your opponent down a peg. And if you continue that, you can come back from being really far down or you can set yourself up to where now you do have enough mana to pull off the the spell of mastery or whatever. So that so what you were saying there was really interesting to me and made me go back all the way to 1994 to think of something. And funny enough, what Troy what you the, your parting thought and then what Troy said made me think about Endless Legend a little bit a lot um, actually. So in Endless Legend, the the mechanic there is that each of the factions has a quest and it talks about the like the story of this particular faction, and then you have the victory conditions. But what they had added later on is they added like this, like one competitive quest where all the factions basically participate in. But in order to get there, you first have to finish your own faction quest. And like I said, each one being different requires completely different things. You got to do all kinds of stuff on the map. And this final quest is cool because it's not a quest where you have to defeat a foe or you have to, you know, there's a grand menace or something of that nature. No, you're actually just trying to escape the planet. Ultimately, what everybody wants to do, the planet is dying, it's the end of days, and you're trying to reassemble a ship that crashed in the planet so you can escape. So that's another way of kind of sidestepping those uh, normal victory conditions, you know, and trying something different. At least that that's for me. That's, that's kind of what makes Endless Legend constantly ring in my mind when I'm thinking about, you know, the future of 4X. Yep, and and we're gonna. Go, I'm gonna throw out one last uh, example and then wrap up too. Um, we have an article coming out in a little while on it, but Emperor of the Fading Suns, which is a totally weird, bizarre 4X game from uh, 1997. But um, it's 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 another example where you're trying to literally steal these like scepters that let you get votes to become the emperor of humanity. It's a very strange game, but. Um, it's it, it's a case where you know all the systems of the game all kind of feed into all the different ways that you can try and steal, um, take away, um, or or otherwise kind of acquire the votes that you need to become ultimately get yourself elected as the uh, the emperor of the known worlds. It's very very strange game, but I think you know like the endless legend example, like um, like maybe the age of wonders or the vortex system. It's something that's a little bit different. So. Um, Mark, you wanted to add something in here? I just found it interesting this whole because this whole discussion was really interesting to me because I was as I was kind of thinking in my head about board games because I know that you love board games, you love your your video games, your forex games to be very 
um, tied into that kind of structure. Mm-hmm. And you were mentioning for a long time about how, how, like, how do we bridge that gap? How do we bridge the gap between no victory conditions and victory conditions? And I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I think that Settlers Like a Tan might be the best strategy board game ever created. It's a good I, one. I, it's, I mean, you can argue, but I think for the most people who have ever played Settlers of Catan, I am not a hardcore, you know, board gamer, but I love that game with, you know, um, the Seas version and the Kings and the Knights version. So I, I think that's a great game. It, it's super tight. It's awesome. But what I think is, is that when you're trying to compare Settlers of Catan and Dungeons and Dragons, and you're trying to say, how do we get these guy, the, you know, these two together? And the victory conditions on both those games, although they're both board games, and you could argue that both are both strategy games, are completely and so utterly different. I don't know if there's ever time, there's ever way that we're able to bridge that gap between those two, those mm-hmm. two type of board games. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of thinking that sometimes that there are going to be four X fans that are going to want a four X game that is purely based on the strategy of. Uh, streamlining towards a victory and it seems to me uh, this is my personal opinion that the future is going to be people looking at it going i want a more open-ended sandbox experience and i'm not sure that those two will ever be no developer will ever be able to bridge that gap completely i, I mean that's my opinion oliver I'm not too oh, sure, sure. What you think of that yeah, yeah. I think I'll let Joshua go here first. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned board games because I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth. I said before that I feel like uh, 4X has sort of moved beyond board games and he's let some of those things go. At the same time, I think if we look at a lot of the board games that have come out in the last few years, I see a lot more innovation there than I'm seeing within the 4X uh, video game genre. Um, so it's, it's interesting that you raise that issue, Mark, because th- a lot of the games that I think about where I say, boy, you know, how are board games dealing with it? I see much better solutions in that area. More people trying new things, probably because it is more of a Wild West gaming scenario than what um, is in the electronic realm. So I think of things like, um, uh, you know, it's not really strictly 4X, but a game like Rebellion uh, by Fantasy Flight, which is based in the Star Wars universe. And has, uh, like, if you're the Empire, you are playing 4X. If you're the Rebels, if you try to play 4X, you'll get stomped. And so you have to, it's very asymmetric, but very interesting. Um, or uh, uh, what is the name of that? Darn it. Oh, Forbidden Stars, which is a, a Warhammer 40K game, which is very 4X-ish. But instead of taking someone's planet, you're collecting resources off that planet and then flying off. So I think that there are a lot of very interesting innovations in that area that um, I'd like to see 4X look towards, actually. Okay, well, then I will say this. 4X needs to catch up to simulation. Because if you think about it, some of the the best games that have come out in recent times, in the last 10 years, have not been uh, strictly strategy 4X games. Because, I mean, 4X, ga- 4X is, a, is a niche genre. But I'm just going to talk about strategy in general. But some of the most breakout, innovative, and interesting strategy games have come from indie developers in a sandbox environment that are way closer to overall simulation than hardcore strategic victory conditions so if that's the case we need to like strategy needs to do what board game is what you're talking about um joshua and really break into some interesting areas because this old format it's not helping sorry go ahead joshua no i agree that's all just agree yeah i think uh you know like distant worlds is a great example of one that you know i think prior to stellaris was probably the one everybody would point to as being like 
you know, simulating a lot of stuff in this big living environment. And that does seem to be a very, um, you know, a very different sort of design conceit than one that's, you know, a 4X game that maybe is closer to that sort of symmetric uh, kind of competitive board game like experience um, that that Joshua was speaking to. So I don't I don't uh, just, you know, I think we're, we're getting towards the end here. So as a way of, of wrapping things up, um, you know, I, I'll just say that, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, I can't wave a, uh, wave a pen and, and imagine what the silver bullet is to all of this. I think it's going to be a continuing conversation. I think this idea of kind of asymmetric designs and how can we maybe move away from these conventional sort of 4X goals and let the genre be a little bit more um, be a little bit more diversified in its approach to the game. I think like with board games, that'll help um, new ideas and new things to be experimented with. I think it kind of falls on all of us to maybe advocate for those kinds of changes and those kinds of things that we'd like to see. So um, I guess just as a final final question or shout out, you know, does anybody have um, anything maybe on the horizon that they're looking forward to that maybe in their mind starts to address or tackle some of these big ideas um, about how games could be really changed at a fundamental level? Well, for me, um, I'm very cu- just straight up 4X. I'm curious to see what happens with Age of Wonders Planetfall. I'm very, very curious to see where they take it. Um, I'm also very much anticipating Thea, the sh- Thea Two, the Shattering, to see what they do there, how it changes, and for non for non four X games or strategy games, Phoenix Point, because that one has a lot more going on on the strategic layer than a lot of games do, and that type of depth is what's I think missing in some four X titles. So if they could. You know, if they're going to learn from anything, that could be something worth learning from. Because the developer for Phoenix Point, Julian Gallup, is the f- is known as the father of the whole um, tactical combat XCOM genre of that type. So, you know, and now you have other games starting to borrow from it more so than before. So we'll see. That's I mean, that's at least how I look at it. So the one thing that comes to mind for me is ironically a game that's already out there, which is Stellaris. I think the constant sort of churn on that game where they're adjusting and changing and trying new things, it's almost become like an experimental platform for 4X where they can use it as a base and play around with the genre and play around with the um, the sort of the traditions of how it's supposed to work where they try different things and change it and that doesn't work and they wipe it out and they try something new. I've seen a lot of experimentation on their end, especially recently. And so I'm very, I think because it's a game that already exists, because it's a game that's already made money, it buys them a chance to take risks. And the more that they do that, I think the more that we can maybe find some new things on the horizon. Um, And so I, I, while I don't think there's anything I can currently think of within the expansions that they've mentioned, I definitely think it's a place where we could see innovation in that area. Uh, Very cool. For me, like Nate, it's Thea 2. I'm interested to see if Muha Games can innovate, but at the same time keep what was really good about Thea the Awakening. I'm already seeing some of it in the pre-alpha version that the Kickstarter backers have gotten. Uh, In that one, you you're supposedly able to win the game without ever founding a city period and so that strikes me as fascinating for a 4x style game where you you never even develop 
something that even resembles an empire. Or, in this game, you'll be able to found multiple towns, unlike the original, where you you were stuck on like a one-city challenge. So it'll be interesting to see how all that works out and what, what sort of innovations come from Thea 2. Excellent. And um, so I think just to add my own quick ones in, I think, you know, I'm also curious, I think a lot of us are sort of on the edge of our seat with uh, Age of Wonders Planetfall, wondering about what they'll do um, for that. I think the biggest question mark for me is, you know, is there going to be something interesting or different on the victory system side of it that, again, kind of structures the whole game in some way around that condition like the SEALs victory or like the Beacon um, system did in Age of Wonders 3. So I'm curious about that. And then, you know, my last one may come as a bit of a curveball for some of you, but I actually think, um, you know, I'm still holding out hope on, on Stellaris 2 that, you know, I think of any of the games that are out there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. All right, let's get the laughs in. No, but I think, to, to be fair, I think, you know, of any of the games that are out there, that one has the sort of biggest scope and the biggest opportunity for experimentation, and certainly Paradox doesn't seem to be shying away from that. And so, you know, I could easily imagine, you know, going back on this achievement idea of them, you know, building a whole bunch of different kind of end game. Uh, triggers or end game scenarios or victory systems around all kinds of different things. Um, I think it's just a matter of whether or not there's a will or an interest or or even a market from their standpoint to go there with that game. But it certainly seems like it has the potential to do that, and I would you know absolutely love to see um, to see that happen in that game or another one. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for sure, Mark, for sure, I, I would. Mark. I, I, I'm going to say one thing. Considering the massive success that Paradox has seen in, in Stellaris, I'm going to be excited to see Stellaris 2. Because I think that, like any breakout franchise, it only gets better, especially in the strategy genre, over time. And if there's any indication, Stellaris 2 might be one that I'm hoping in five years we can all sit down and, and debate about its merits. So that's probably one of the ones I'm probably looking forward to. Awesome. Awesome. Well, everybody, I want to thank you all for uh, joining me on this little journey here tonight. Um, I know we get pretty esoteric here, talking way down in the weeds on some of these things. But um, I think for me, you know, this conversation and the topics that we were covering today, like this is what keeps me still excited and interested in the Forex genre and where it can go. Um, Thinking about how, you know, we can craft games that might have a very shape a very different experience and it's not just another you know moo clone or mom clone or uh whatever other kind of clone you want of a game that came out you know 25 years ago but that you know we can really start to break new ground and i think um you know hopefully this conversation will shed some shed some light on those opportunities that are out there and where it can go go next so i want to thank you all again and nate i'll turn it over to you here all right, thank you. So, as usual, um, we have uh, a little thing at the end where we ask a question of the community. So, this time around, I would like to extend this question to you, the listeners. Um, what do you think? What any of the points that we brought up, any of the sections that we discussed? If your opinion differs, if you have, you know, you you think we're completely wrong or we're absolutely right, you know. Hit us with the comments and you know below in the sec- comment section, Oliver. You'll probably open up a thread in the Steam forums, so you know let's talk over there. We're very curious. We, we always love getting this feedback from the community. And then as a follow up to that, 
what games do you as a community think do a good job of meeting the needs for the second part of the series and uh finally again as usual thank you to our patrons for supporting us we really do appreciate you you make all of this possible so thank you and uh guys i'll thank thank you all for joining tonight it's been a blast my pleasure your pleasure yep thank you (laughs) really good to be here and with that i think we're done see ya